in Myanmar, the government does not appreciate Christians. And so sometimes in the little villages of the scattered people, particularly the Kren ethnicity, the government has come in and used napalm on villages to just burn and wipe out the whole village. Sometimes they'll come in with helicopters and machine gun down whole villages of Christians. And this has been going on for a long time, many years. Still occasionally is going on. And they have a particular thing that they like to do. And that is that when they kill everybody in a village, the children are the hard ones to kill. They're small, they can go hide in the rice fields, and they're taught to do that. And so they make sure, if possible, that the children see their parents killed to make an impression on the children. And thankfully, there are Christians who will sneak across the border into Myanmar and try to find these children whose parents have been killed and they're usually hiding out terrified in the jungle or in a rice paddy somewhere. And the Christians are sneaking through also and they find one of these children and they take them back over into refugee camps in Thailand. And Judy and I were in one of those refugee camps where those people do that. And we were working with some of these people. And I think the Sorry. <laughs> They sing the same songs you're singing, and they're really beautiful songs. And they sing in four-part harmony. And you're right there with them. It's some of the most beautiful vocal singing I've ever heard. And it's these young people who've been through some of the hardest things that could surely happen on earth to a human being. And they've become Christians, and they're in these camps, and they're singing these same songs, and there's something that happens. And I hear you singing these songs, and... I get like this flashback and one moment I'm seeing your faces dedicated to Jesus and a moment later I'm seeing those Korean people who are, some of them are about your age now and I, I see them singing, their heads are tilted back and I have videos of them and if I could show you a video of them, you'd say, oh, what happy, they grew up in good, solid, strong Christian homes. Look at those young people, godly young people. Obviously they've come from a deep, rich heritage. No, they haven't. They came out of who knows what. Some of them were Buddhists. Some of them were nothing. Some of them may have been Christians, but they were little children. And they've endured and seen some of the awfulest horrors on earth. Yeah, Jesus changes things, but they sing those same songs. But there's something that happens in in my mind that I hear you sing, I can see you and then I see them. And for a moment as you're singing, I let my mind see them, but hear you sing. I don't know, it feels to me like the church. I think there's something else that we can do. I I can hear you sing and I can see them. And there's something the bride can do. And that is, as we journey through life, we can behold the groom that same sort of way. As we're doing our work, as we're behind our computer and the internet, as we're driving down the road, as we're dealing with the feelings and emotions of our heart, boy-girl issues, whatever they might be. He's set before us 
back to that Psalms, Psalm 16, 8 it is. It's easy to remember. 8 half of 16, 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me. We men who are talking about that. I have set the Lord always before me. Always before me is Jesus. The groom. The bride beholds the groom. Bride, behold your groom. Can you see him there walking down the road? Strong, bent over, bowed down and bleeding. Your, your groom. Uh-oh. He's struggling. He's carrying a load. Bride, behold your groom now. What do you think? There he is. Carrying a cross. Bride, behold your groom. In Matthew, I can't, it doesn't come to me right now. It says, sitting down, they watched him there. How do you watch a crucifixion? You pull out sardines and rye bread and some pickles. And, you know. I think if I were watching a crucifixion, if I was sitting on a blanket, I'd probably lean over the edge and throw up. How do you watch a crucifixion? Bride, behold your groom. What do you think? It's not the end of the story. He died. Took him down, put him in a grave. Well, bride, what do you think now? That's also not the end of the story. There's Easter. The stone rolled back. And the, the groom came forth. Bride, what do you think now? Bride, behold your groom. He ascended up into heaven. He's seated at the Father's right hand. Bride, behold your groom. What do you think now? He's coming back someday on a horse. Can you imagine? Can you hear the hoofbeats of the horse of Jehovah? Bride, behold your groom now. He's coming in glory. He's going to be the King of kings. He No, He is the King of kings already. The King of kings seated on the throne. Bride, behold your groom. Can you keep that image before you when you walk, when you leave this place? When you go to school or to work or to wherever you're going, keep that image there. He's coming back soon. I can almost hear the hoofbeats of the horse of Jehovah. Can you hear it? What's it going to be like when the groom comes for the bride? Son, go get your bride. In your heart, do you know you're ready? She hears the noise. She hears the sound of the shofar. She hears the shouts in the street. And this isn't just the normal goings on because this is at night. She knows he's coming as a thief in the night. She hears the shout and the roar. This is it. She knows it. And it's drawing closer and closer. And she hears the on the door. I think that's may, that may be about where we are right now. I don't know. We don't know the day or the hour. But watch. 
I think we're getting really, really close. And as a bride in this place where we're watching, where we're waiting, where we can hear the approaching hoofbeats, and we keep, we're keeping Him before us, set before us always. There's this image before us that somehow in the glory of the, of, in the light of His glory, this, things of this world grow strangely dim. And you know what? We're not packing stuff up. We're not going to be filling our houses and our closets and all this stuff because that's not what's got our attention. He has got our attention. What on earth should the bride be doing in these last days? Let me give you some things. The bride should worship. She should sing songs of praise together. She should share the joy of the Lord together. Gathering. We speak of His goodness and His glory and we fall down before Him. Revelations 4.8 Crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. I wonder what would happen if we could really hear that. I could, in my mind now, I can see those Karen faces and I can hear their song. Can you hear the holy, holy, holy? Can you join that holy, holy, holy? Can you say it with me now? Will you say it with me now? Say with me. Holy, holy, holy. What do you think that sounds like from heaven? What you're doing here is happening in heaven. It's true when you sing, when you say those words, holy, holy, holy. God's ear is hearing those words. This is happening. Your worship is happening in heaven. Who all is participating in that? What about Joe Alphonse, Pastor Alphonse, his name? Alfonso. Alfonso. Aaron Deaton. Do you think they're saying holy, holy, holy? Do you think they just heard you? How does this all work out? I know there's some questions we have about the, in, the interim time, if there's such a thing, and how whether there's even whether time is compressed in eternity or significant or not, and there's some, probably some things about that we don't fully understand. But I want to capture this, and that is that your worship is joining with their worship. Your worship is joining with the worship of the people down the street and across the state of Washington and outside of America and across, across the ages. There is something connected there. There's something we, we read in First uh, uh, Corinthians 11 about how somehow the angels are involved in worship. There's angels somehow connected with this when they hear your worship. When who was at church last Sunday? Yes. You were okay, you were anybody else at church last Sunday? Okay, good. Well, what about I wonder about great great grandma Moeller? What is the church? 
I know there's, we have to define it contextually because in the English language we have the notion of the church house, the local church, the universal church, we have that. I just, just join me in thinking about this a little bit. But in the context I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of the universal church as God sees it. Who was at church last Sunday? Who was gathered? Who were the chosen of God? Who is the assembly of believers as God sees them? Was Paul there? Was Timothy there? Who is the church? When you worship, I would suggest to you that your worship in the ears of God is joining the worship of people in Russia and China and Nigeria and Nicaragua and Argentina and a few other places. That worship in God's ears is the worship of the assembly. And just a little sneak preview. Next Sunday at church, Jesus is going to be there. Don't miss it. Whatever is going on in our worship is going on in heaven. If you can somehow get that picture and understand that, this is real. It's bigger than just a little social group or a fellowship or a fraternity or a people sitting in this room enjoying the surging emotion of a song well sung and the words even grip our heart. There's something greater than going on, going on than that. There is some sort of a koinonia among us, a fellowship among us, a knitting and a joining of oneness. And we have so many metaphors for this from, you know, from bodies and branches and and buildings and brides and it what does it look like from God's point of view let's try again one more time and I want you to try to think of it and realize that you are joining with the church and say with me one more time holy 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 the ring of that was heard in heaven. What ought the bride to be doing? Worshiping? Praying? What was the church doing when Peter was in prison? Praying? I know what I'm standing up here right now there's people praying. And you know what? If there weren't people praying for me right now standing up here, I'd have to sit down there. I don't trust me that much. I trust God. There's believers in prison in China right now. I want to ask you a question. When I go home and I see them, can I tell them that you're praying? Can I? Thank you. I'm going to. We need each other. 
when you're going to, we go out on the streets, Lord willing, if He opens that door for us, and there's going to be people, you're going to see maybe a homeless person or somebody else, and you're going to see a brother or sister, and they're going to be talking to that person, Lord willing, if He opens the door, if He chooses to do that, can they know that you're going to be praying for them? The bride loves be kindly affection, Romans 12.10. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. 1 John 3.11 This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We pray the Lord's Prayer. We say, Our Father in Heaven. When we say, Our Father, I mean my Father, and I mean your Father, and your Father, and your Father, and her Father, her Father, and her Father. I mean that. And I realize that if I say, Our Father, I mean, Sister, you're a daughter of the King of Kings. That's something even greater than being the daughter of Trump. <laughs> Michelle, how exciting that would be. Maybe that was a bad example. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm just saying that the President of the United States has a lot of power, the most powerful man in the world. God is way up there. He's the king kings, the Lord of lords. He's your father. She's his daughter, and so is she and her, and every woman is a daughter of him. You're a prince. Don't forget the highness of your calling in Christ Jesus. You're a son of the king. Love like that. Respect like that. 
all in the same boat. Maybe there's somebody in here who's not, who really is really good and holy. Well, God bless you. But you know what? I need the cross. And I'll meet you there. I hope you can grant me a little bit of grace to go to the cross. I grant you the grace to go to the cross. I will. I'm not going to hold anything against you. Life's too short. We don't have time. I can hear the hoofbeats coming. Let's not worry about that. Let's just get our chin up and let's just keep looking to him. When I was a little boy, my mother used to comb my hair and she'd say, chin up, Mark, chin up, Mark. And I grow up, no more chin up. But you know, the rest of my life, God's been saying, chin up, Mark, chin up. Get your eyes up. We begin the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, where? In heaven. Ah, that's a different kingdom, isn't it? Yes, I know we're in this kingdom and we do have to work and earn food and we live here and, and we have to go to share the gospel. That's one of the commands. That's one of the things we are to do in this world. We don't, the rest of it, I'm not sure, is really very important. But we're here in this world, but we behold the groom. We're going to keep our eyes up there. We had talked about the seed of the church, the conception, the birth, the breath of life, the struggle of the church in sanctification, an ongoing struggle. And you probably looked at that and said, you didn't want to identify, well, that's them, not us. You know, most of those aren't our problems. You know what? It is us. It's us. It's our journey. But what's God's purpose for us here? If we're going to accomplish His purpose, then if He's going to guide us with His eye, then give Him your eye. And I know that right now it's kind of like me seeing the Quran in my mind, but it's very, very real. Give Him your eye and keep Him in view. And the day is going to come when that shadow, I don't know if I have my, yeah, I do have it here. When that shadow that you see, that you know is a shadow of something very, very real. If the shadow's there, the thing is there. He's going to come, and in full glory, you're going to see the real thing. You can hand that around a little bit if you want. See if you can make a shadow out of it. And so, we say, give us this day our daily bread. Us. Give my brother bread just like you do me. Give him forgiveness just do like you do me. Give him all the things that I want. Give him those things too. I want sanctification. I want purity. I want grace. Give the homeless person this day his daily bread. Give the orphan this day a pair of arms. Oh, be thou warmed and fed. Who's going to do it? When does the Word become flesh? Whose hands and whose feet are going to do it? Jesus said, take this cup. Eat this bread. Take it within you. Read this Word. And when you take the Word in you, in you, in you, you know what happens? The Word becomes flesh. Your hands and feet are going to go forward. 
There is something about this flesh that I think is a lot more real than we ever really think about very often. There's something about communion that's far more real than just sitting around a table looking and doing some introspection. That's all good and that's right. We look back, we look at the present, we look at the future. There's something bigger going on, I think. And I would consider this. It might be God's heart that His Word be made flesh in each one of you. So, we gather, we grow, and we go. We gather in fellowship. The church is not intended to be solitary. I knew a man one time, his name is Ken Mitchell, and I like to hike, and I go in the mountains, and a few times in my life I met Ken Mitchell, and he'd say, he, he, he told me, he says, hey, come into the bar, kid, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll buy you drinks. And Ken, I'm a Christian. And Ken's oh, Christian, he says, I worship the God of the pine tree. But you know, Ken was not a very happy man. He spent a lot of his time drinking his troubles away. I, I don't think the God of the pine tree served him very well. There's something about joining together, the gathering, the gathering, the assembly of believers. There's something about coming together that is the heart of God. We're not meant to be solitary. And by nature, I am. If someone would ask me, if you could just have your way with the old flesh ones, I'd say a little log cabin with a red front door off in the Brooks Range. And if my nearest neighbor was 50 miles away, that'd be plenty close. Okay, probably if you had asked me that. But there's something that the Spirit of God within me changes all that. And you know what? Inside of me is something that wants to be poured out like wine for people. I love people. I see something. I look out there. and There's something I see that God has in mind. And I, I can only just imagine this much of it. But there's something in it just dries and just pours itself through me. And we sing the song, Would you be poured out like wine upon the altar for Him? And there's a part of us, I think, that sings that song. And we just picture, I don't know if it's something kind of romantic, you know, like in a magazine, on a honeymoon drinking or something. I don't know what, what, you, what you kind of picture. But I'm afraid it's a little bit different than that. We've been hearing about this sacrifice. That sacrifice was blood. Will you give him that much? Will you give him your blood? Will you pour it out? I know we're to be a living sacrifice. I'm speaking symbolically. I'm saying, will you give all the, will you give yourself a living sacrifice. He was the last dying sacrifice. Will you give him your body, even your blood? Your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ear. He is Lord. Will you pour that out on the altar? So we gather. Hebrews 10, 24-25, Let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, exhorting one another. And so much more so as you hear... A knock on the door. Approaching hoofbeats, however you want to think of it. Fellowship in communion. Eucharisteo. Eucharisteo means true grace is literally what the word means, but the actual meaning of the term is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And he gave thanks and broke bread. Many, many times you'll see that Eucharist used or 
grammatical variations. Giving of thanks. Something that we do together. In everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's something. That's not just a solitary thing. That's something we do together. This is the voice of the bride. The voice of the bride. Thank you. Thank you. Holy, holy, holy. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me. But thank you for what you've done for all these people. There's something that the people of Asia have in their culture that we don't have in the West. Here we're very, very independent. And we think, I, me. In the East, they have a completely different sense of society. It's we. That's a little hard to explain if you haven't been there immersed or, or immersed in it. But it's we. And I think the church in Asia has a little bit of a leg up there because they get that we. Their thanksgiving. When they pray, has anybody here ever heard Asian prayer? No? Okay, you have. Okay, some of you have. There's something there in the we. And for, for us Westerners, it might sound a bit chaotic. But if you're immersed in it a while, all of a sudden you begin to understand this is one bride speaking. There's something there. We gather in thanksgiving, communion in thanksgiving. We grow. Romans 15 14. The church is a place to grow, to gather, to grow. And I myself, or I'm sorry, Romans 15 14. I better get more organized here. Thank you, Judy. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. It's pretty easy, I think, just to get baptized because that's the next rite of passage. Makes us an adult. Get some respect. It's not really why we do it, but we're aware of that. And once you're there, then what happens? But the church is a place where people grow. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2 The things you've heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. A lot of you have that memorized. Colossians 3.16 The word of God, I'm sorry, the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. These are just all functions of growing, the growing church. And First Thessalonians, wherefore comfort yourselves with these, uh, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as ye also do. The edifying, the growing, the building. The, by growing, I'm thinking of nurturing, nurturing, discipling. Ephesians four, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Grow them right on up. Equip the saints. Who's that? Is anybody in here a saint? Oh, there's, oh, they're getting to be more and more. Well, there's saints all over the place. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's right. Equip the saints for what? Yes, yeah, serving, ministry, serving. That's what the church is to do. And so the outcome of that is serving, yeah? And meanwhile, well, the function of the church is equipping, preparing to send people out. The saints, you are a saint. 
Hagias is a saint. Interestingly enough, if could you look at the person beside you and say their name and say saint? I'll say Saint Judy is an accurate term. Could you say that to the person beside you? Okay. I remember years ago, Brother Sam used to say, he'd greet me, it was just kind of a thing he did sometimes, say, St. Mark, and I always felt like, <laughs> you know? I feel like a really little short saint here. But, <laughs> but you know what? There's something inside me that stood up a little higher. It said, speaking of that, our position in Christ, you're a saint. Don't forget that. The person beside you, is a saint. And I know we the bride are still growing and sometimes we have some growing pains and we slip and we fall and we get back up. And, you know, I think, uh, what was her name? Abby D. Abrigio or something like that. Does anybody know the, the runner in the 2012 Olympics? Abby D. Abrigio, Braggio, I don't know, a French girl, I think. And she was running and she was running down the track and, and, I just pulled a story out of the air here, but they, I remember that she and her, and her co-runner fell down. They, I think it was her friend tripped her, or maybe her enemy, whatever it was. Anyway, tripped her, and down they went. And Abby, instead of just, she was fine. The other girl wasn't quite as fine. Instead of just jumping up and running on, she went over and she helped the other girl up until they got organized, just a few seconds, but it took a little bit to get the shoes and everything right. And she took off running. Well, she lost first place for sure and the interesting thing was the the television cameras came to her later and said Abby this is the Olympics why did you do that and she says because I'm a Christian that's what Christians do Hagias the saints don't think that don't think of that word too lowly Agias Numa what's that Holy Spirit, same word. The Spirit is holy. You are holy. Well, what do you think God expects? How does God see you? How does He feel about you? The hoofbeats of the horse of Jehovah are coming. Are you ready? You have spots in your garment you need to clean up. You might check for a little bit of beet juice. Might have got dropped there. Sometimes just day to day, those things happen. Check them out. Get it clean. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the dress got rumpled in the corner. <laughs> maybe it's time to iron it, get the wrinkles out. Good time to do it. He's coming. He's coming. It may not be long. I'm a little concerned about this people over in Seattle. I haven't heard yet. He might be coming. What, what if... What if there wasn't time? I hope he gives us time. I hope he lets us go. We gather, we grow, we go. We go, James 1.27 tells us what pure religion is and undefiled before God to visit the fatherless and the, the widows and their affliction to keep himself unspotted from the world. There's a few little things to do there, aren't there? Yeah, it, that's what we're, as we're going, we go 
to the widows and to the orphans, and we watch our garments as we go. We're in the world. It's kind of a dirty place here. It's easy if we're not careful to bump up against gross stuff. And so keep yourself unspotted. I'm so glad we have each other. I don't want to stand up here without prayer. I don't want to go through the world without you. Let's gather together. We need each other. I don't want to go it alone. We go to all the world, teaching, baptizing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, being light, being salt. I want to switch gears here and a little bit. I have a number of topics I wish I could talk about. You can probably see in your notes. Um, Let me talk about this one. In the global brotherhood, by I mean the universal church, there are some issues today, uh, these last days, as I almost think I can hear the shout now and the trumpet. I don't know, but it's getting close. I think it's getting close. But there's some concerns we have. One of those concerns in the greater church today is this concept of ecumenicalism. I've used that word, and the word for some people is good, some people it's bad, some of us we don't really know what it means, and I would just offer a, a, little, a little way to think about this word. Ecumenicalism is referring to, if I just in simple language, is it's talking about joining together over the lines that have built up over time. Okay? So we have different... I, like, I prefer not to even use the word denominations because that's a kind of a European-American thing. Many other places, some other places it's there too. But I, at least in the world where I live, mostly denominations, they have no concept of it. It does not exist. You're a Christian or you're not. And so yeah, I probably won't camp out on that word. I'm not really worried about that word. I'm, I'm more concerned about the notion of ecumenicalism in this sense. There's ecumenicalism by compromise. That means that we reach for the lowest common denominator to include everybody. That kind of ecumenicalism is not going to leave the bride without spot or wrinkle. What that means is we look at the, at the, bride, the part of the bride that has the dirtiest, wrinkliest dress and say, that's the standard. I don't think that will serve us well. There is another kind of ecumenicalism, and that's ecumenicalism of biblical truth. It's back to orthodoxy. Judy, would you write orthodoxy up there? Orthodoxy, that is true doctrine. And where we can unite on true doctrine, we can have true, good, biblical, God-honoring ecumenicalism. I hope that kind of definition is helpful. At least it seems helpful to me. cooperation and unity among Christians of different practices, different traditions. Lord, I just can't bend that far. I'll break. You ever been there? Different traditions. People feel that way. I know. 
Whatever the answer is, let our ecumenical view of the church be not one of compromise, but one of unity based on biblical truth. When I talk about the church around the world, I'm not talking about some kind of thing, well, everything goes, you know, once saved, well, you could live into life of Riley and it's all okay. That's not what I mean. I mean that when I am in Vietnam, and those people are lifting their faces to God, and they're crying out because they're sinners, and they're rejoicing and singing hallelujah to God, that is orthodoxy. That's true doctrine. What they're doing is right. Their hearts before God. Is all their orthopraxy the same as ours? No. It's a little bit different. That's why we go there, is to invite them to better orthopraxy and sometimes, would you write that word up there, GD, please? Thank you. And sometimes better orthodoxy. There are problems in the world. There's problems. And I really, really care about the bride having a spotless, wrinkle-free garment to wear. And so we go. Will, will you go? Will you go to Seattle? Some of those people aren't living such a good life. Some of them will tell you they believe Jesus. Is that the church? I challenge you with this. Don't look for at what they're doing wrong. Don't live in the tree of good and evil that can spot a sinner a mile away. Live in the tree of life. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Whoever they are. I don't care if they're half drunk in the gutter, you can still point them to Jesus. God knows those that are His own. I can't figure it all out. I don't know where to draw the lines. We go in some of these churches and their music isn't like mine. Sometimes their dress isn't like I'd prefer. Sometimes they don't cover their heads or they don't do this or they don't do that. Or, and there's a part of me that says, Mark, look into the author and finisher of your faith. Invite these people to look that direction. Open up this Word so that the Word can be made flesh in them too. That's where my job lies. Teaching them all things. you got to go if you're going to teach them. You don't have to teach people who already know it all and are doing it all right. Pluralism is a philosophy that allows diversity of viewpoints and doctrines to exist within a single body. So pluralism is another term. It's a, it's a philosophy term that just means broadness. And pluralism can be good or bad, kind of like the term ecumenical. And pluralism for the philosophical purpose of Embracing pluralism because it's politically correct. I don't want to lose you on this. Is not going to serve the church well. The kind of pluralism that says, I see Jesus in you, but I don't expect you to be perfect. And my vision of seeing Jesus in you is not just because you have put on some robe of traditions. And so I'm satisfied now. I have no idea where your heart is and I'm not even overly worried about that because you look good on the outside. 
I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about I see Jesus in you. I see growth. I see Jesus changing you. I see the fingerprints of God Himself, the potter in the clay, and He's molding and shaping you. And there's, there's some imperfections there, I know. And He's shaping and He's molding you and He's doing that for every single person in here. And I can feel it. Can you feel it sometimes? It squeezes you. It's the fingers of God shaping you and molding you, making you into the image of Jesus Christ. And as I look over here, for like glory to glory, I'm looking and I'm seeing like in a mirror, I'm seeing a little bit more of Jesus. I see Jesus in you. Ah, praise the Lord. I think there's a con- that, that concept, if we can think of pluralism in that way, that it might be helpful. It might be helpful. We can appear to have unity because we tolerate anything. But that doesn't mean we hold unity in truth. I'll just say that again. I probably haven't... I just kind of said that off here. Let me say it again. I'll try to say it better. We can appear to have unity because we tolerate anything. That does not mean we have unity in truth. Judy, would you write something on the board? Tolerance... Make an equal sign with a slash through it. Tolerance does not equal unity. Liberal churches oftentimes are lax on doctrine because I don't think doctrine matters that much. The fact that we struggle with doctrine means that we care. That's good. It's okay to struggle over these questions of doctrine. Denominations. What's my... I forget my time again. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Issues of denominations. <laughs> Sometimes the question will arise, should we, are denominations bad? Is it just sectarianism? Is that the kind of thing that Paul absolutely condemned? And I've had an interesting perspective in my life living overseas where there are no denominations. And I look back and I ponder this whole thing and part of me says, oh, if only there were not denominations. But let me just offer you some thoughts about denominations. Here's some advantages to denominations. They do reduce compromise. A group can set guardrails. They reduce compromise. Because a group can agree. A group can... Set some guardrails up. And there's nothing wrong with guardrails. Don't worship them. Don't equate them with the Word of God. But I'll tell you what, in your home someday, you're going to have guardrails. In your home, you did have guardrails. Maybe something simple like don't run in the living room so you don't break your teeth out on the coffee table. But whatever those guardrails were, they were reasonable, common sense things to given the environment that you lived in, the time that you lived in, and the personalities that were in your household. Okay? If you have little, you know, Michael, Michael the motorcycle just tearing around all the time, it might be good to have a no running in your house. But if you have little sweet Susie who just sits there playing with her dollies, it might never occur to you to make such a rule. Okay? Pastors have that kind of responsibility. They're interested in the sheep. And so they're going to, the, the time, the culture, the personalities, 
all are part of what a pastor is considering as they seek God's heart and will to, ah, let's not make rules for people. Let's not make mosaic law. People to think they're going to be okay if they keep the rule. Let's not start creating all these new traditions people got to keep and trappings. And let's not do that. But how can we set, you know, some common sense things that fit our local need here and our unique situation? There's an advantage to denomination in that sense. It allows a group to stand against heresy it pr- and provides accountability. Heresy can come in a couple of ways. Heresy can come within a denomination because they don't have the accountability of other Christians. That's one kind of heresy that can creep into it. But there's another kind of heresy that we see in China. And that is you have house churches and because of persecution they become isolated and we'll see pastors become dominant spiritual abusers of the congregations. And that is a very common problem that we combat often in China. And heresy. Why? Because the church is isolated and there's not other churches, there's not other pastors coming together to offer them counsel and guidance because they're isolated. They have to be because they're persecuted. And so what happens? Give them a few years. Inevitably, they start sliding off in some little pet idea or something that gets distorted even more and more and more until it becomes heresy. There are Christians in China who pray standing on their head because there was a man one time who's fell in a well and he prayed and God saved him and he said, oh, it's because I prayed upside down. So he teaches his congregation to pray upside down. That's not a joke. You know, but isolation gets you some really strange places. Discipline is a way to deal with false teachers. A mature system, and that's going to take time and cooperation, will better deal with false teachers and discipline. You show me a very small group and I'll show you a group that long-term will struggle providing meaningful, effective discipline in a church. Okay? And there is a place for discipline in the church. I don't have time right now, but there is. Um, Discipling. Denominations provide an environment for discipling. Largely, it's a function of maturity. You have a mature group or body working together over time, you're just going to probably do better. Here, well, yeah, let me just go on here. Denominations, uh, this is a little counterintuitive. Denominations reduce divisions. People say, oh, the problem with the denomination is those lines. I agree. I agree with you. I don't like those lines either. But there's a couple of things that happen. One is, when you have a denomination, there's a sense of a little broader range of toleration for new lambs. You don't really have... But this is where most of the people are. But there's always a few people over here in the fringes. And how wide can this get? And the size of a congregation or a denomination, either one, tends to be a function of how broad this is. Of course, some mainline churches today, lax churches, that gets almost to be a flat line. (laughs) You know, it really doesn't matter what you do. And some churches get so narrow that, I mean... We have we look really good. We keep we're keeping all the traditions because we chop off all the problems out here. 
People say, well, you don't have any problems with divorce and marriage, remarriage in your church. I know. We didn't deal with our problem. We chopped them off. They went to some other church to deal with their, the challenges that they're having. I'm thankful that we don't, and I hope that the reason is because we're going after the heart. But my point is, is that rather than chopping people off, we should be in the business. If there's a purpose for dis- discipline, it's restoration. It's love. We have a stronger united voice. Our voice is stronger united. If you can find a a gathering of people who are like-minded, that lights all those little candles together in one place are going to shine a little bit brighter than lots of lot of little dispersed ones. That's a perspective. I know these are analogies and you might find imperfections or disagree and that's okay. I'm just offering this for your consideration. Let me give you some disadvantages to denominations. Exclusiveness. We begin to focus on a group distinctive and we do in fact become sectarian. We exclude people who do not keep our traditions, which has nothing to do with the gospel or necessarily a truth from the Bible. Now it gets a little bit tangled up because our traditions hopefully are an outcome of our doctrine. Our orthopraxy and traditions will fall under orthopraxy hopefully are an outcome of our orthodoxy, which is true. And so it's connected up. It's just that there may be other kinds of orthopraxy which are also orthodox. Okay? There's more than one way to baptize. There's more than one way to hold communion. There's, and so forth. We have a way that we think is biblical and we're convinced that it's good and best perhaps and other traditions probably have theirs. There's, there are differences of orthopraxy. But what the problem I'm talking about is when it has to be other kinds of things that do not actually go back to orthodoxy. We could say, well, a, you know, a, a collar wrapped three times with a knot around it under here is uh, modesty. And so we use the, the orthodox, the, the true teaching of modesty to say this orthopraxy is the will of God. There's other orthopraxy that is also probably meets that orthodoxy. Does that make sense? The problem is denominations sometimes focus on a distinctive of orthopraxy and becomes exclusive based on that. That's a problem of denominations. Actually, it's a problem of churches, house churches in China too. Spiritual abuse. Because denominations sometimes tend toward a um, separation between clergy and laity, there is sometimes a proclivity or a, a, an inclination for politics to get involved, and clergy can sometimes be tempted or kind of like waves in a sea before very complex reasons be moved towards some degree of, of politics which results in power, which results in spiritual abuse. 
Oh, it's not easy. It's not easy. That, but that's a challenge that we have that actually we see without that continuity of a large group who has an established tradition. The problem is when the tradition becomes more important than the gospel. That's the problem. Another problem, I've got to quit here, is oversimplified theology. What I mean by oversimplified theology is you're okay if you're just a member. You just keep the traditions and all is well. And again, you can see the problem is is that tradition becomes more important than the gospel. And it's complicated because oftentimes our traditions are can go back to good roots in orthodoxy. It's what we've done with them. There's nothing wrong with what, say, Catholicism does with communion. That's a beautiful thing and a right response to orthodoxy. Transubstantiation is a different story. The Catholic Church notion of excommunication is a different story. That is... And the way the church has done that, the Catholic, I don't mean to be picking on the Catholic church, but I will say this, that the Catholic church has the notion of apostolicity, that the the church is the incarnate Christ and therefore as an apostle has apostolic authority. If that's like, what's he talking about? Don't worry about it. It's only this, and that is that traditions are equal to the Bible and power in our lives is a notion held. And it's really easy to say, well, that one doesn't happen to us, but oh, it can. It can just get right in on us. There's another thing. I just might mention this too. And this is an interesting thing that anthropologists, even non-Christian anthropologists, note about Christians. And that is that as we have these culture types I mentioned the other day, we have like a guilt, right, the sense of right and wrong is a function of guilt, innocence, shame, honor, power, fear. Power, fear, we say, well, that's what the primitive people, the ungodly, the uneducated, that's, that's, their cultures tend to be that way, the undeveloped ones. But an interesting thing happens is in the overarching orthodoxy that we have that governs um, how, we, how we believe in our hearts, there becomes, if we're not careful, a, a uh, how do I say this? A, a subculture of power fear within us that, that can rise up within us. And in our heads, we're saying, well, it's, it's orthodoxy. We're, we, we go back to the Mosaic Law. It's guilt, innocence. That's our sense of right and wrong. And yet down kind of hidden under the carpet here is a subculture of fear power. Fear power. Okay? So we have to be careful of that. That's a, that actually tends to happen more, I think, in, the, in a denomination than it happens outside of a denomination. So there's, there's pros and cons to denomination, but I would like to just say this much. I would hope you don't high center too much on it. 
We live in both environments, and I think there's pros and cons. And rather than try to, to take a position on it one way or the other way and then cherry pick some scriptures to, I would just get your eyes up on Jesus. Say, you know, wherever people are, let's move them toward the heart of God. Our ministry in China is finding Father's heart, not finding people's foibles. You know, kind of pick out a sinner way over there, you know. That just, I'm not going to waste my time on that. Conviction of sin is, the, is something the Holy Spirit does. Our work is to move people toward the heart of God where that conviction of sin can occur. Okay. Many things I'd like to talk about. I'd love to... Uh, I, in your notes, I don't know if you have... Uh, the scripture references. Judy might just, well, I'll just tell you what they are. I really loved them. I don't have time now, but as I'm looking, that was, we were looking at some, a couple of challenges in the greater universal church. I really wanted to spend some time on the local church, and it's okay. Um, I hope that your ministers in your local churches can give you authentic good teaching. I believe that they will, and if, they, if, if you're not fresh on that, invite them to, ask them to. But I like the model of the Church of Thessalonica. I just, it's a little church in the far north, kind of appeals to me. You know, you got Philippi up there and Thessalonica just down right below it. And I don't know, I just like the church, good little church. But it, let me just read some things here. It was a saved church, 1 Thessalonians 5. Oh, the gospel came not in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit and assurance. And so then we have the surrender church. This much at least should be in your notes. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord. And what was my time again? Now. Okay. Okay. And so I'm going to stop here, but just follow that on through, all the way through Thessalonians um, verse 8. And let me just, I just want to end with this one thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that is this. Bride, behold your groom. And if you want to see him up close, lay down your life a living sacrifice. It's, we, we can look up there in the stars and we can see his finger work. Yeah. You want to see his arm? You want to see his bare arm? Go out there and... Well, you could hug an orphan. You could, you could hug a leper. But there's nothing so profound. Nothing. To reveal the arm of God where you will see the groom more clearly, I don't think, than if you can hold the hand of a sinner who's surrendering. Hold the hand of someone who's giving their life to Jesus Christ. And nothing else will ever in your life matter like that matters. If you've had the opportunity, you know what I'm saying. If you haven't yet, God bless you. I hope you get it today.